Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, Justin Trudeau puts partisanship above leadership in the midst of a national crisis. CBC doesn't want anyone competing with it. And Patrick Moore joins me to talk about getting banned from speaking about climate change at an upcoming Regina conference. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. There is a crisis sweeping Canada, and Justin Trudeau doesn't seem to care. Welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. This is an absolutely dismal display that we see from the government right now. One that actually, as a Canadian, infuriates me a great deal. I'm actually a reasonably happy-go-lucky guy. I don't like the idea that the country is in disarray, that protesters have proven you can basically blockade and hijack your way into getting the government's attention without being stopped. So I take no joy in pointing out this particular failing of Justin Trudeau's government. But here we are. Here we are. The Liberals have decided and continue to embrace the position that there is apparently no need to enforce the law. The Justin Trudeau line that we've heard is, oh, we're working to de-escalate and we're trying to bring all parties to the table and we're trying to talk our way through. I'm sorry, since when do you talk your way through a group of people that are brazenly flouting the law? Not even, I don't even want to say flouting the law. Because flouting makes it sound all flowery and romantic. They're breaking the law. They are showing disdain for the law, showing disdain for the rule of law, and showing disdain for the Canadians who every day themselves are trying to follow the law. That's what these protesters are doing. And I, I don't want to rehash a lot of the things that I spoke about on the previous episode of the show, which if you missed, you should go and listen to it because I did talk about a lot of the things that uh, were going on then that are still happening right now. So it's still very much timely. But the thing I want to focus on right now is that Justin Trudeau has actually managed to politicize what could have been and should have been a fairly unifying episode in Canada's history. And the reason I say unifying is because one of the things that I hold to very firmly is that national crises are about more than politics. When there's an act of terror in Canada, if there's an act of war, when there is a, a mass weather event or something that's causing people a great deal of harm, something that's taking lives. These are things that are supposed to be above and beyond partisanship. So it's not supposed to be about liberal versus conservative. It's not supposed to be about left versus right, liberal party versus conservative party versus new Democrat versus Bloc Québécois versus the kooky greens. It's not meant to be about that when we should all be coming together for the good of the country. But that idea, Justin Trudeau has completely thrown out right now. And the reason I say that is because Justin Trudeau decided to convene this week all of the party leaders to sit down in a nationally unifying way and, and talk about all the things that we're going to do as a country to move forward, to get past the blockades, to find a resolution. And what does he do? He decides to exclude the leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition, Andrew Scheer, the Conservative Party of Canada's leader. I know he's stepping down, but as it stands right now, and insofar as Parliament is concerned, Andrew Scheer is the Conservative leader. Everyone but Andrew Scheer gets invited. 
the Green Party leader who, again, Elizabeth May has a heart for public service, but they're a non-player on the scene nationally. You've got the Bloc Québécois who wants to dismantle Canada itself. That's always been the, the MO of the Bloc Québécois. The NDP, which is the third most populated party in the House of Commons. So you've got this ragtag group of left-wing politicians that are invited, but the lone conservative leader who happens to represent more members of parliament than all of those other liberal parties, he gets excluded from this. So Justin Trudeau actually doesn't want to be the prime minister of Canada. He wants to be the head of the mean girls pyramid where he's the one at the top. He's the chief mean girl. I don't know who that character was. I think it was Rachel McAdams. He wants to be the Rachel McAdams character of Canadian government right now. And instead of governing, he's focused on, oh, well, Andrew Scheer, he, he doesn't get to sit with us. So Andrew Shears over at the table in the corner of the lunchroom while all the mean girls talk to each other. And you know what? I don't normally care about political bickering, except we are talking about a national crisis. We are talking about a national issue right now that is disrupting the Canadian economy, that is potentially harming Canadian lives. We've talked about some of these groups that have had websites that are urging people to actually use explosives and Molotov cocktails and stuff like that. And I'm not saying that most of the protesters are violent. But there are certainly violent influences amongst them. You've got protesters that are being paid so that these groups will continue to amass in numbers. And all of a sudden, you've got a prime minister that is more focused on protecting and preserving his delicate little ego than dare to have a conservative have a seat at the table as they discuss the way forward. So again, so Justin Trudeau, who says that he's all about listening to the protesters, trying to find a resolution, he actually doesn't want to listen to anyone that is going to offer a different perspective on this situation than the people around him that are just going to be sycophants, that are going to fawn all over whatever he says. He doesn't want anyone that has a position he finds disagreeable to even be in the room. That's what's happening here. And it's astonishing how brazen he has done this, how brazenly rather he has done this. Now, you may not like Andrew Scheer, you may not like the conservatives, but surely the idea of a national crisis being something that Canada is facing should trump politics and should trump partisanship. But for Justin Trudeau, it's, oh, no, I, I don't want to hear that. Trudeau says that Andrew Scheer's criticism of Justin Trudeau disqualified Andrew Scheer from being a part of the solution. About an hour ago, I had a meeting with uh, Mr. Singh, Mr. Blanchette, and Ms. May uh, to discuss how uh, this government is working to uh, engage in peaceful resolution of uh, this situation. Mr. Scheer disqualified himself from uh, constructive discussions with his unacceptable speech earlier today. Well, that criticism was about Justin Trudeau not being interested in finding a solution. So you don't need to do what the guy's telling you to do, but surely you can listen if you're trying to get Canadians to take seriously the fact that you're onto this, which I don't think you are. And what was it Andrew Scheer said that was all that troubling? Well, take a listen. Take a listen to this clip. That was the weakest response to a national crisis in Canadian America. Yeah. Minister's word salad just now, Mr. Speaker, and at least two key things were missing. A clear denunciation 
that the actions of these radical activists are illegal. And some kind of an action plan that would put an end to the illegal blockades and get our economy back on track. Yeah, so Andrew Scheer says it's the weakest response to a national crisis in Canadian history and pointed out that there has been no clear denunciation of radical activists' illegal actions. There's nothing untrue about that. And in fact, I would say, where has this Andrew Scheer been for the last three years? This is an Andrew Scheer that I think many Canadians could get behind. Look, there was a poll that came out from Ipsos this week that shows the majority of Canadians, a clear majority of Canadians, do not think these blockades are justified. Beyond that, a majority of Canadians who think that police should be called in to deal with this, that there needs to be a law enforcement response. So Canadians... By the way, and that includes a lot of Indigenous Canadians, especially those who support the Coastal GasLink Pipeline project, are saying, yeah, we expect the government to deal with this. We expect leadership. You can't just sit down and listen to someone who is holding you hostage, which is exactly what's happening on these blockades. And by the way, I do not blame law enforcement for this. I I do not blame individual members of law enforcement uh, groups because they are taking their marching orders from above. There might be some criticism to direct towards the chiefs of the police departments, but I think more importantly, it's the politicians to whom these law enforcement agencies report that have a great deal of questions to which they must provide answers. And again, this story that came out of Manitoba was astonishing. There's a blockade there on Manitoba's, I think it's Highway 75, and near Morris, Manitoba, a group of demonstrators blocking the highway. They are performing roadside detentions. These people, these rogue protesters, are doing roadside detentions of drivers that are just trying to go about their business down this highway. They've blocked traffic. They've narrowed it down. They've decided they're going to start talking to drivers, roll down their windows, and do things that, by the way, it would be illegal for law enforcement to do illegal roadside detentions and this one truck driver uh, sees this line says screw this he decides to drive i think it was on the shoulder or he drove around the blockade in some way and two of the protesters try to jump in front of him try to like put their arms out in front of the truck to stop him one of these protesters now says that he was hit by a truck you can't be hit by something that you got in front of that means you hit the truck You hit the truck. The truck didn't hit you. You hit the truck. So this guy says that now this trucker has hit him. Uh, He wants police to investigate. Police are investigating. Police aren't investigating the protesters that caused this illegal blockade. Police are investigating the guy that tried to just go about his life the way he always has and the way he always should be, driving his truck from point A to point B. They're investigating him. Can you imagine what had to have happened in someone's head in Ottawa to think that this is the way things are supposed to be in a free country, that we now investigate the people who find ways to get around the illegal blockades while leaving those responsible for the illegal blockades alone? Oh, no, we just we just let them do their thing. That's okay. And for Andrew Scheer to get up and say, yeah, this has been a pretty weak response to a national crisis. And that's deemed too controversial for him to be allowed to have a seat in the table when what's supposed to be the cross-partisan meeting of party leaders takes place. 
Now, look, I actually, despite being a critic of Justin Trudeau, would love nothing more than to stand behind my country's prime minister as he makes the tough but important call to deal with this. I would love to put partisanship aside. I would love to put my ideological disagreements with the liberals aside and have a Canadian response that looks out for Canadian people, for Canadian principles, for Canadian values, for the Canadian economy, and for the rule of law in Canada. I would love that, but I don't have the opportunity to do that right now. I don't have the opportunity to do that because Justin Trudeau has decided that he doesn't care about these things. And I, the prediction that I made on Tuesday's show, which is not a radical prediction, by the way, it doesn't, doesn't, I'm, I'm not a genius. It does not take a genius to reach this conclusion is that there is no way out of this that doesn't involve police eventually having to come in and make arrests. The protesters are not going to back down because what they want is not possible unless we're talking about completely ceding a veto of Canadian industry and energy to these activists, to these radicals. And the only way apart from them just changing their minds is for police to start getting in. So if that is the inevitability, I don't know if Justin Trudeau is waiting for someone else to come in and fix this, waiting for someone else to come in and say, Okay, well, uh, you know what? Here's the magic wand. You know, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. The problem solved. I'm sorry, there's no fairy godmother that's going to swoop in here and fix this. You're the prime minister. You're the government. You have the resources of the federal government behind you. You can show a sign that you are going to look after this. And instead, he's just sitting, oh, well, uh, oh, Andrew Shear was mean to me. Boo-hoo. You're concerned that Andrew Scheer was mean to you by criticizing your mishandling of this more than you're concerned by all of the Canadians who are being disrupted and all of the Canadians who are being threatened, all of the Canadians whose livelihoods are being threatened by this. You care more about Andrew Scheer being mean to you. That's what Justin Trudeau has turned this into. That's what he has turned this into. So he called short. He was supposed to go to Barbados, I think, at the beginning of the week or on the weekend for this meeting. And he said, oh, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cancel my trip to Barbados. I'm Which, by the way, that's actually a very positive gesture. For Trudeau to turn down a trip to the Caribbean is actually a big deal, more than I think we can realize. So he says, I'm going to go back to Ottawa to deal with it. So I expected from that that he was actually going to deal with it. I expected that when he says, all right, well, I have to be in Ottawa to manage this crisis, that he's going to manage the crisis. I don't know what he's done that he couldn't have done in Barbados, which is to say nothing. I think the response actually might have been a bit better if he had just stuck around on a beach in Barbados, uh, because without Justin Trudeau here, maybe someone would have actually done something if he were absent, if he were just going to continue to phone it in as he's been doing since he got reelected. But you've got 61% of Canadians who oppose the blockades. You've got 75% who have uh, believe that we need to help Indigenous peoples. So Canadians are actually severing these. Canadians don't think that the blockades are actually about Indigenous rights. Canadians realize that, yeah, we should do all of these things for Indigenous peoples, but these blockades are not about that, and these blockades are not justified. And I was actually a little bit optimistic this week when Andrew Scheer put a number of motions forward on the notice paper of the House of Commons, which is nerd speak for he put a bunch of motions forward that might be introduced. It's not introducing them. It's saying we're just giving you a heads up. We might introduce these. 
And one of these was very clear. It was put on the uh, the notice paper February 18th from Andrew Scheer that the House has lost confidence in the government. That is, in clear and unequivocal terms, a motion of non-confidence in the government of Canada. He also put another one forward, that the House condemned the government's inaction in response to the illegal blockades of railways, highways, and bridges by activists not impacted by the Coastal Gas Link project, and call on the government to take action immediately to restore access to important economic infrastructure. Another one, that the House stand in solidarity with every elected band council on the Coastal Gas Link route. Another one, that there is a report on the quantifying of the financial impact of the rail disruption on individuals and companies. And also uh, th that the Foreign Affairs Committee conduct a study of foreign funding by groups of protesters or of groups of protesters. So some great motions on there, though the Conservatives a day later backed off of the non-confidence motion. They said, uh, you know what, maybe now is not the right time. They're not actually going to pursue that particular motion. And I was actually kind of mixed on it, to be perfectly candid, because I think that there is a, a valid reason to put it forward, even if you know it's not going to be successful. I mean, as we saw from the Mean Girls routine, Justin Trudeau has the backing of all the left-wing parties. He has the backing and support of these different groups. And I think that it's safe to say they would probably back him in the event of a non-confidence motion, the reason being that they like him more than they like Andrew Scheer. And they don't like a scenario in which Andrew Scheer gets any moral authority or in which Andrew Scheer actually gets to potentially govern, which could happen, uh, but certainly they aren't going to coalesce behind him, so we'd be back to the polls. It just wouldn't go the direction that it needed to. But it would force these parties to put on record whether they stand behind Trudeau's handling of this crisis or not. That's what I liked, is that even if it was going to fail, it would have forced the NDP to say, yes, I have confidence in Justin Trudeau, or no, I don't. It would have forced the Bloc Québécois and even the Greens to say, yes, I do, or, or no, I don't. And I know that Andrew Scheer is only the interim leader right now. He's not the guy that was supposed to be carrying the Conservatives into the next election. But at the same time, like I said earlier about rising above partisanship, you can't say that this is not a moment that any opposition leader should be seizing because Trudeau is showing his failures to be about far more than just, oh, he's a liberal and we don't like him because he's a liberal and we're conservatives. It's actually about failing to uphold a fundamental tenet of Canadianism, which is or is supposed to be support of the rule of law. It's that simple. And Andrew Scheer asked, will our country be one of the rule of law or will our country be one of the rule of the mob? And Justin Trudeau is not shying away from the fact that he's standing by the mob. Justin Trudeau is actually quite fond of standing behind the mob. And, and the left-wing rhetoric on this is absolutely insane. Uh, the Green Party of Canada responded with a tweet saying, a message for you, Andrew Scheer. Civil disobedience is not radical. Civil disobedience is legitimate. Civil disobedience is lawful. Civil disobedience is just. And civil disobedience works. Now, whether it's radical is subjective, whether it's legitimate is sub subjective, whether it works, I think, is subjective, although I'd say it's probably not working right now. But, it, but what's happening now is not lawful. 
Yes, civil disobedience, protest is lawful. Protest that does not interfere with others' rights is not lawful. Canadian law does not prescribe or allow what's happening now. It just doesn't. It is forbidden to block rail. It is forbidden from ro- to bro- block roads. It is forbidden to do all of these things. So you can't say just because you disagree with an energy pipeline. I mean, what, what happens if I start protesting? Oh, I don't know. Uh, the carbon tax. I don't like Justin Trudeau's carbon tax. So I'm going to set up a camp on the 401. No, I don't like the carbon tax. I'm going to set up a blockade. Oh, I don't like the carbon tax. I'm going to, uh, you know, stand outside of Pearson Airport and deny people from getting in. Oh, I don't like, uh, you know, I don't like Justin Trudeau's uh, middle class ministry. So I'm going to do, I mean, look, when do we say that your political disagreements do not trump the rights of others? And it's not about individualism versus collectivism. It's about the individual rights of the people who are being disrupted, and yeah, by extension, the disruption of the Canadian economy and and all of these other factors that are at play. But I've never, I've never been able to tolerate those who aim to disrupt others, those who use their rights to free speech to block others, which means that it's not actually about free speech. You know, I was at, uh, when was it? I think 2015 in the election campaign, I was covering an event of Stephen Harper's, and there were union protesters that were blocking people from getting into the parking lot of the event venue. So you had, again, you know, 1,500 people that were going to be in a ballroom to hear Stephen Harper speak, and you had seven or eight people that were stopping them from entering. And they'd keep you there. They'd move every, you know, let a car go through every two minutes or so. I ended up just parking elsewhere. Uh, And police just stood by and watched it. Police just stood by and watched it. So we've now accepted that blocking others from moving, denying others the right to free movement across the country, which, by the way, is a constitutional right, is allowed that this is allowed. But the Green Party says, oh, no, 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 this is uh, this is very lawful. And Justin Trudeau says, oh, if you, if you say that you don't like this, you don't get to be a part of stopping it. Well, Justin Trudeau doesn't like this. Like, no one in Canadian politics likes what's happening right now. It's just whether they dislike it because of the disruption or they dislike it because of the pipeline. But no one is happy right now, except for the protesters, because they have nothing better to do. The protesters have absolutely nothing else going for them except this veiled sense of superiority because, oh, they're the ones that are standing out in the cold and blocking people from shipping whatever it is they're shipping or from taking the train to go see grandma or doing whatever. Oh, yeah, you should be really proud of yourself. Really proud of yourself. What have you done with your life? And, and I have no tolerance for this, but I, have, but I expect it from them. See, I expect this sort of nonsense from the protesters. I don't, well, I shouldn't say I don't expect, but I would like to see the government rise above this. I mean, the protesters are always going to do this. You need the grown-ups in the room, or first off, you need there to be grown-ups in the room, but you need the grown-ups in the room to stand up and say, okay, well, you can do this. You can have your hissy fit in the corner, but me being the adult is going to pick you up, give you a spanking, and make you go to bed because they're behaving like spoiled children. So when Andrew Scheer said they have to check their privilege, I don't know why that was seen as a radical concept because most people don't have the privilege to just camp out all day and not have to focus on, oh, I don't know, going to work, producing something, creating something, being a part of the solution. Petty, petulant children. 
Back in a moment with more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. You know, I meant to mention in the previous segment, and it slipped my mind because I got a bit ranty. I apologize. Actually, I don't apologize, but yeah, well, whatever. Uh, (laughs) Mark Miller, who's the Indigenous Services Minister and the one who's basically running point on this, had uh, posted a photo of that party leader meeting from which Andrew Scheer was excluded. And he says, during this difficult time, it's good to know that we have the support of the progressive leadership in Parliament. And then he did it in French, of course. And this is actually, I think, a very telling picture. Because for starters, it's reminding me of that old photo of Stéphane Dion and Gilles Duceppe and Jack Layton, the uh, three-way handshake photo where they were trying to basically gin up support for a coalition government. So Mark Miller is sitting around uh, this little living room and he's saying, oh, we've got the support of progressive leadership. So that's basically saying, yeah, you know what, we're prepared to uh, be in a a coalition, either officially or unofficially. And I would say further to that point, it, it shows that they only want the progressives at the table. They don't want there to be anyone who disagrees with their handling of it there, which means, again, like I said, they only want sycophants. They only want sycophants around the table, which is absolutely the wrong way of doing anything like this. And speaking of sycophants, let's talk about the mainstream media for a moment here. Uh, CBC is part of a panel of mainstream media outlets calling on the government to support, quote, trusted news sites, unquote. The letter that was put forward by the News Media Council, News Media Canada, and signed by a number of uh, independent and corporate mainstream media outlets from CBC to the Toronto Star to Post Media, La Presse, etc. Uh, but CBC is the important one here. A letter to Parliament saying that the government needs to do more to save media. Now, these are outlets that are already getting $595 million from the federal government, but now they're saying that the news industry in Canada is in trouble. They think there's a fake news problem. Facebook and Google are getting too much of the digital ad revenue in Canada, and they need to uh, apparently get the government's help to survive on this. They say that Canadian laws have been slower to respond to the evolution and adaptation to the digital world that the mainstream media has had to embrace. And a couple of things that that stand out in this letter here. I mean, fair competition is one section where they say healthy competition is good, but, and it's, it's always good when someone says, but you can ignore whatever they said before the but. They say, but outdated rules have permitted an unfair environment which favors foreign digital companies. So they argue that foreign players are able to have an advantage because they don't need to pay sale. They don't need to charge sales tax. They don't need to do other things. But what they forget is how restricted telecom in Canada is right now. So there's no competition, which means that if a foreign player were to come in and say, you know what, we're going to put money into a Canadian news division, I would say let them have it. But they couldn't under the current rules. So the rules are actually very protectionist in nature. And this is when they're talking about fair taxation as well, a big problem. But they say that the government needs more. We media organizations, the letter says, will continue to work together to do what we can to support a healthy news ecosystem, Uh, yada, yada, yada. We encourage you to support Canadian media in your community. A strong democracy depends on diverse sources of trusted news. 
we all have a role to play. And the reason I share that is because the trusted word is always the one that you have to latch onto as being the source of problems, because the mainstream media doesn't actually want diversity of voices in this eight space. They don't want a robust ecosystem that has new media organizations popping up every day. They want a system that basically prevents them from hemorrhaging money. They want a system that's going to give them more longevity that their business models in 2020 aren't giving them. And when they say trusted, what they're basically saying is everyone but us should go away. You should protect us. Because we're the last bastion of support in that free fake news fight. We're the ones that are going to be there to stand up for truth. And those other people won't. And Michael Geist, who's actually a, a great voice on this issue, he's a, a telecom expert, a, an intellectual property lawyer, I believe. He's aimed here at the problem of CBC saying that its support for new government regulations, which is basically what's happening here, is a bit of a problem. He says they warn ominously about the impact of internet platforms and the involvement of the CBC uh, continues to demonstrate that the public broadcaster has, in his words, lost its way on public policy and the public interest. No one can argue the CBC, which receives, again, upwards of $1.3 billion a year from the government, is a voice that needs to be supported more than it already is. You know, I was actually at an event in, not an event, it was a crime scene. Uh, <laughs> when you're in journalism, that's what an event is, basically. And it was in 2017, and I was just talking about this with a friend earlier today. CBC sent six separate crews to cover this one event, six separate crews. It was in Strathroy, Ontario, which is about uh, 35, 40 minutes west of London, Ontario. And they sent a crew from Toronto that was the CBC Toronto crew. They sent a show a crew from CBC National, which is based in Toronto. They sent a crew from CBC's The National, which is a show produced in Toronto. And then they sent a CBC radio person, a French CBC radio person, and a CBC Windsor crew for the Windsor newscast. So six different crews from CBC alone sent to the same crime scene. No one can say that CBC is in desperate need of support here, except for CBC which thinks it's not enough, which thinks it's the one that needs to be supported and handheld by the government to the tune of infinitely more than it's getting now. And it's not just about the money. It's about the regulation and restriction of the market to prevent other voices and other companies from entering the market. So they don't just want a bailout, but they want to avoid competition. When they talk about fair competition, it's actually a colossal sham. So I'm glad that they're being so open about what it is that they want here, calling on the government to support trusted sources of news for Canadians. But they're taking aim at people that are part of that digital marketplace of ideas, which includes aggregators, which includes other media content generators. And what's really, I think, relevant here is the same dichotomy that we saw when Stephen Gilbo was forced to walk back his commenting about licensing news because he said, oh, no, 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 we're, we're not going to license news organizations. But absent was a clarification on whether he would license media organizations. And that line of news versus media is what CBC and its colleagues are trying to get at in this letter, because they're talking about aggregators and people that are digital players who monetize news content. 
and aggregate it across their platforms. So they say that this undermines the ability of Canadian media to pay for the journalism they have created. Well, that is not going to be solved by stopping other voices from doing it. And, and what they're talking about with aggregators are uh, people like, let's say, the Drudge Report, which has a, a website and it has advertising on the website and you can click to links of stories that are being done on other platforms. Well, if you go to those platforms, you're seeing their ads. You're seeing their ads. So, so the problem is that they haven't figured out how to monetize in a digital world and that is not the government's problem any more than it's the government's problem to step in and save any other uh, antiquated industry. And that doesn't mean there isn't a place for news and journalism and all of these things in 2020. That's what True North is doing. It's that you, ha you can't cling to the old way of doing it, which no longer works in a digital marketplace. We'll be back in a moment when we return. Patrick Moore, former head of Greenpeace, on being cancelled and then replatformed for an upcoming talk in Regina, Saskatchewan. Stay with me. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. The cancel wars continue. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. Pleased to welcome to the program in just a moment Dr. Patrick Moore, who is a former president of Greenpeace Canada, a very prolific writer, and I'll also say tweeter on matters of climate and the environment, but apparently too controversial for the city of Regina. Regina had invited Patrick Moore to kick off its conference on sustainability in just a couple of months' time, the Reimagine Regina Conference in May. But, of course, nothing good can happen without the activist mob getting thrown into full gear. The activists started petitioning the city to try to get Patrick Moore cancelled, and they succeeded. Now, it's not entirely a bad news story because Patrick has been replatformed after his deplatforming. Ezra Levant of The Rebel, Ezra being a very good friend of this show and of True North, decided he would take things into his own hands. And he's hosting the same night Patrick Moore as Patrick was supposed to be speaking in Regina. So there will be at least an opportunity to hear what it is that he had to say. But it still speaks volumes about where we are today, that everyone is so terrified of an alternative viewpoint that they have to cancel the person that was going to bring it. What is that alternate viewpoint? Well, in Patrick Moore's words, it is as follows. There's no doubt in my mind that on balance, our CO2 emissions are 100% positive for the continuation of life on Earth. You might disagree with it. You might be able to have a raucous debate about it. Is it controversial? And is it something that should get him canceled? My goodness, no. Patrick Moore joins me on the line. Patrick, good to talk to you. Thanks very much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me on. Now, I must admit, I, I'm rather pessimistic when it comes to a, a lot of the cultural issues we see surrounding free speech and especially on the climate issue. So I thought that you would have had a lot more experience with this than you do. But I was reading in your financial post op, but this is actually the first time you've been deplatformed. Yes, I'm, I'm a bit surprised it's the first time, but it is. And I have the Greenpeace background. I was 15 years helping found that organization and spent 15 years in the top committee as a director and then a director of Greenpeace International. So, you know, I know my ropes, uh, I know my stuff. And uh, for a while they were leafleting my presentations by putting 
propaganda against me on the chairs uh, in speaking at, but they stopped doing that 10, 15 years ago. And so uh, I'm pretty well left alone. Um, this sparked uh, in Regina uh, some university professors who I guess are wanting to protect their climate change grants from the government or whatever, uh, decided to object to the mayor uh, about my uh, coming up appearance. And it's not till May the 20th, so they got the jump on me. And mayor, uh, it's, it's kind of behind closed doors what happened here. I don't know how it went, but the mayor publicly asked his councillors and organizers that were organizing this conference on sustainability and renewable energy in Regina to reconsider my invitation. Um, I suppose they did that because then they announced that I was being uh, disinvited and round, round filed uh, by themselves. So the mayor never made that announcement, even though you'd think, seeing as though he was the one that asked them to give him advice on it, that he would be the one to, to say that I should not be allowed to be there or should be allowed to be there. And then of all the miraculous things, now the mayor is saying they should have kept me on the program. So I don't know what the machinations are, but uh, thankfully, my good friend Ezra Levant, who we've known each other for many, many years, and he, he saw that I'd been deplatformed, and it took him about two minutes to get on the phone and propose to me that we get another venue and go ahead with this. And not only that, preempt this conference by doing it the night before, and here we are now. The last I heard was two or three days ago. We've sold over a thousand tickets already, and I would imagine it's considerably more than that today. I, I haven't heard from Ezra. I think he's covering the blockades out, out, out in Ontario. Yeah, I think you've actually outsold the City of Regina conference by this point. <laughs> I believe so, and this indicates to me, like, a lot of people get cringy about stuff like this, but I've been on the front lines all my life and I don't get intimidated by this sort of thing. And when Ezra came along and, and, and said he'd help me put something on, I know he's quite capable. And the other good thing about Ezra is he knows about security because he's had to deal with some things in his time too. Yeah. And uh, I think we're going to put on a really good show. I hope people come to listen. Even the people that don't agree with what I'm saying should come and listen because I have a lot to say and what I have to say if, if, if there's anything I say that people think is uh, phony or incorrect or whatever I'm always willing to learn my mother actually when I was quite young told me because she was she was a lifelong reader and learner uh, she said you don't stop learning when you just because you turn 21 you you should be a lifelong learner and I've taken that advice my whole life, and I learn a bunch of stuff every day. So uh, people who don't uh, want to learn anything more and become dogmatic in their positions are wasting their lives, as far as I'm concerned, because everybody should be learning every day. There's so much to learn. Uh, it's an infinite, almost infinite amount of information uh, there is out there to put two and two together and understand how the world works a little bit better.
I want to ask you in a moment about the message itself, and I, I know you elaborated a bit on that in your financial post piece, but but I do want to get into a bit of the background on this, because Regina came to you. This wasn't a case of you being the one beating down their door saying, let me speak, let me speak. They booked you through your speakers bureau. They had a contract with you. In all honesty, and I, I don't mean to insult you here, but do you think they just didn't know who you were? They saw the green piece. They saw the PhD. They assumed you were one of the conventional climate experts or so-called experts we're hearing from? Or do you think they originally went into this with open eyes and open ears and then got cold feet once the mob descended? Well, if they didn't know who I was, they must be living in a closet somewhere. <laughs> well, I agree, uh, but I, I mean, I, I can't understand any other reason why they would be surprised that you were going to say the things that you've always been talking about. Yeah, I see. That's what I, 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 it wasn't a very open process, obviously. Uh, mm -hmm. the mayor, the mayor did say publicly that they should reconsider me. And then they obviously reconsidered me and decided to ban me. So, uh, I have no idea who knows who or what the opinion, maybe some of the organizers are hardcore climate extremists. You know, the, the objective of the stated objective of this conference two days with 45 speakers. Well, maybe there's only 44 now. I don't know if they've replaced <laughs> me or not. But two days of discussing how to make the city of Regina 100% renewable. Right now, does that... I, I don't... They said all their operations and facilities. So facilities are buildings. Does that mean their buildings can't have any steel or concrete in them? Because they're non-renewable. And I think they're confusing the word renewable with the word sustainable. And I've always made a point, because a lot of people, I got a little ditty called renewable and clean, sustainable and green. Those four words are often thought to mean exactly the same thing, but they're all completely different. Renewable is like fish and trees uh, and solar, uh, the sun. The, actually, the equipment they use to catch the sun isn't renewable, though made out of aluminum and glass and ar arsenic and a whole bunch of other stuff. But renewable is very clear. But renewable doesn't necessarily mean sustainable, because if you overfish a fish stock, that's not sustainable, even though the, the fish is renewable. So th there's one way of looking at it. Another thing is, is that sustainable can be non-renewable. There's enough iron and aluminum and many other things in the Earth's crust, uh, uranium for nuclear energy, to last for tens of thousands of years at least, maybe millions. So we don't need to worry about using too much iron, even though it's non-renewable. And concrete, the same. Cement is made from limestone, which is 8% of the whole Earth's crust. It's actually of life origin. It was made by marine calcifying species in the sea. I point that out in my article. So I think they could have got some clarification from me about what they mean by 100% renewable city because are they going to have solar powered fire trucks you know are they are they <laughs> going to make they going to ban fossil fuels inside the city limits that's what 100% renewable would mean 
One of the things that I, I find so fascinating about this, and, and you're Canadian, so you, of course, are aware of the, I think in many cases, exaggerated panic when Stephen Harper was the prime minister about the government interfering with scientists and silencing research and all of this stuff that the media was saying. And the political left was, was very antagonistic towards this. And I find it fascinating that there's no outrage when it's reversed. So you're the scientist, you're the guy with the PhD, you're the guy with the expert, but but the mayor and city council can clamp down on a speech that you are going to give without criticism from those people. Well, yeah, it, I mean, they are a bunch of Trotskyites and, 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 and that's in the literal sense because Trotsky's primary strategy was to blame other people of what he is. And these people who use the word bigot and racist, you know, it's usually them who are bigots and racists because they're people who will not tolerate any other view but their own exact view. You can't even vary two, two words from what their party line is, or, or they basically want to banish you from the face of the earth. And what kind of way is that to conduct a society or to conduct, conduct a conversation? Or well, and, and what sort of way is that policy? to conduct scientific inquiry? Well, they're not interested in scientific inquiry. They just use those words. When they say climate scientist... They mean someone who agrees with them, because the opposite of a climate scientist is a climate denier, right? That's, that's how they are using the yes. words. So, and people don't pick that up because they think, oh, climate scientist, that must be a scientist who studies the climate. No, it's not. It's a political term. It's not really a scientific term, because actually climate scientist is a silly phrase. A cli the climate is so complicated and involves so many disciplines from astrophysics to oceanography to atmospheric physics and the, the composition of the plants on the Earth and every other imaginable thing, uh, it, it is a very, very complicated subject. And to just bring it down to climate science and climate denier is purely political because politics is always about slogans and, uh, and, and actually always about using language in a way that is deceptive or propagandist. It, Propaganda is about using language to color things uh, evil or, or good, you know, and, and the, I understand how to use it, but that's not my shtick. Well, and your message is certainly one that I'd say is radical compared to what we typically hear. I mean, we hear all the time from politicians who say that CO2 is the bad guy, CO2 is the enemy, CO2 needs to be regulated and all of this stuff. And you come out very simply and say CO2 emissions are 100% positive. So how does something so at odds with the narrative stand up? What's the pitch for why that message was one that you thought uh, the people of Regina needed to hear? Well, just a little fun thing to start with. You know how people said that it's, if you talk to your plants, they'll grow better? Uh, and, and a lot of people would go, oh, that's silly. Actually, it's not silly because when you breathe out, you're breathing out 40,000 ppm of CO2. That's 100 times higher than it is in the atmosphere because it's 400 parts per million in the atmosphere. So when, you, when you're talking to your plants, you're breathing on them and you're giving them a big shot of their food, which is carbon dioxide. And I'm sitting in my garden here in southern Baja, surrounded by greenery. All of this greenery is sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere. And the amazing thing is, at 400 parts per million, that's only 0.04%, they can actually get enough food out of the air. 
it is it's phenomenal because we we need at least 15% oxygen in the atmosphere in order to, to to breathe get us down to 5% oxygen and we start to die uh, plants can live at 0.04% of their primary food which is carbon dioxide and that's what people have to have to get back to understanding is basic biology that carbon dioxide is the source of carbon for all carbon-based life in the sea and on the land. Carbon dioxide is also dissolved in the oceans, and that's what the life in the oceans uses as their primary source of carbon. And all life is carbon-based, so CO2 is the food for all life, including us, because we have to eat the plants to survive. We can't just, there wouldn't be any animals if there weren't any plants. And so it's a perfect circle. We breathe out CO2, they breathe in CO2. They give off oxygen, we breathe in oxygen. So just starting right there at that basic. And the, the, the other important thing to recognize is, you know, all these climate alarmists, they never want to go back further than about 1850 in the history of the Earth to look at, you know, we have really good knowledge of what CO2 and temperature was going back for half a billion years. And the truth is, if you, if you were to be exposed to that knowledge of the relationship between CO2 and temperature through the millennia, you would see that there is zero support for the CO2 causes temperature point of view. It is not true. It's only because in the last 150 years or so, since we started increasing the CO2 in the atmosphere, the temperature is also going up because we're in the modern warm period, so you have a correlation. But if you go back in history, you will see that CO2 and temperature are out of sync more often than they are in sync. And that is not a correlation. So th th there's no reason to just jump to the conclusion that there's a, there, there's a causal relationship. CO2 causes temperature. There's no reason to do that in the scientific literature going back for millions of years. So they only want to talk about the last 50 years mostly, you know, the, the, the Earth is 4.6 billion years old and its climate has been changing for a long time. And we have marine sediment uh, samples that we can analyze and see what the chemistry of the Earth was like way in the past. And they just ignore all that. They don't even want to talk about it. Well, and that gets into the great divide here, because unlike the alarmists, unlike your most vocal critics, you actually, and you said this earlier in the interview, you welcome the debate, you welcome the scrutiny, whereas their alternative is to say, no, 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 you can't let this Patrick Moore guy speak. That's exactly right. And I just uh, I feel, I feel bad about the way things have gone here politically. Uh, this is an extremist, cultist, kind of poisonous, uh, combination of religious cult and political ideology, and it has absolutely nothing to do with science. Well, I'm very glad you've been replatformed. I don't like that it had to get to that point, but certainly I'll make an effort to be there. Patrick Moore, thank you so much for coming on today, and best of luck with the talk in May. Thank you very much. Anytime. You know, there was one point Patrick made in that op-ed that I thought was very interesting, which is that it's only people in the coldest countries in the world, like Canada, that are concerned about global warming. And I do, I find that interesting, especially coming from him, who he's like just hanging out on a beach in Baja, Mexico. Maybe he's not on a beach, I don't know. Whereas I'm like, oh, I'm in the cold Canada right now, and I'm supposed to be the one that cares about global warming. Bring it on!
in any case, my thanks again to Patrick Moore for coming on the show and also to all of you for tuning in. We'll be back next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show, The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.